Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Ancillary Justice, Star Wars, and a delightful piece of original fic by Avolio called The Course of Honor. And welcome to episode nine, like Rome, but with lasers. I'm Alex, and I'm the Farscape one. I'm Freya, and I'm the Saga one. I'm Macy, and I'm the Killjoys one. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about space empires. But first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I just finished reading The Cruel Prince by Holly Black. And I'm not a big YA reader. I've not read very many things by Holly Black either, but I loved this book. It was exactly what I was hoping it would be, uh, based on the recommendations that I'd read about it. It's really vicious and magical and dark, and I loved the main character, I loved all the characters, and it's full of sort of complicated, chewy relationships between people and between the kinds of power that people are reaching for, so I really recommend it. I'm really looking forward to the other books in that series. Have you read Tithe yet? I read Tithe a very, very long time ago. Uh, and it was her first book, right? I think so. Yeah, and I've I've got White Cat on my shelf, waiting to be read. So I have there's a lot of hers to read in the meantime, but this was the first one of hers that I've read since Tithe, I think. White Cat has con artists, so you'll probably like it. Probably, yes. <laughs> I have heard that. Meanwhile, I have been reading Space Opera, because I am an obedient vassal, I guess. Alex? You're not a vassal. You just take my <laughs> book recommendations. Where, where, where do book recommendations fit into the liege relationship and or imperial design? It's like you're shaping somebody else's mind by getting them to read the things that you want to read. So in a way, it's kind of there. This is kind of uncomfortably hot. Bro. Bro. <laughs> I'm just saying. Anyway, I, was, I read Space Opera and we'll talk a little bit, I think, about that later on, maybe. And I've also been reading this really great fan fiction called Maggie Fitzgerald and the Saltwater Drip, which is a novel-length reimagining of the Spider-Man story, as if Gwen Stacy was the one bitten by a spider who became Spider-Man. And it's really well done. I know that this ended up being done in the comics anyway, but this fic kind of digs into racial dynamics in New York and Spider-Man as an agent of protecting people against the police. And so I've been really finding it quite interesting to read. Interesting, interesting. And when you say space opera, you are, of course, meaning not the genre space oh, opera, yes. but the book Space Opera by Cat Valente. Indeed, yes, that one. Great, just to clarify. And as for me, I am reading literally absolutely nothing, not even Dragon Age fanfic, because I'm sobbing and trying to claw my way out of edit hell. And I'm so, so close to being done. The end is in sight, and soon I will be finished and we'll be able to read things again. We so, just, as soon as you claw yourself out of edit hell, I'm going to just dive straight in because I have my editorial letter from my agent now. So I guess tag, I'm next. Yay! I, I am so close as well, and I'm going to race you, Alex, and probably win. Yeah, probably, probably, because you only have a couple small things to do. Anyway, let's just <laughs> jump right into the episode then and stop yes. complaining about our, our edit hell lives. So today, uh, as you may have guessed, we are talking about Space Empire. Uh, I think 
what was that noise? <laughs> was that a woo? Yes. We yeah. like space empires. We They're do fun. like space empires. And so one of the things we want to talk about is why. So why monarchy? Why do we love royals when it comes to space government? And also what other options are there? Why do we have to be obsessed with royal families? So that's one of the points we want to talk about today. Yeah. So and as well as like the, the system of government, we wanted to talk about space empires as imperial conquering forces or just kind of massive trade arrangements. And what really is an empire anyway? Is, is the UN an empire? Uh, are the United States? Who knows? So I wanted to talk about this in particular because I was at a great panel two years ago at 4th Street Fantasy Convention. And I believe your agent sibling, Arkady Martin, is that right? Indeed, yes. She was, she was there and she had this really chewy definition of empire, which was this. Empire is a multicultural framework which incorporates these cultures under a uniform ideology, which works to preserve the stability of that system. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. Especially the multicultural part of it, because I think you can find examples where empire is an attempt to homogenize culture. I think so, but I think that it's normally an attempt to homogenize over a group of multiple cultures, hmm. right? And in that case, then it's just that the framework they're attempting to apply is all-encompassing and tends not to work. You're trying to find the, what, what, is, what is the balance between creating a uniform culture and allowing individual cultures that is the best for stability, I suppose. Right, exactly. And so the, I know the, di the dictionary definition is a little bit different, and that's just an extensive group of states or countries under a single supreme authority. And I think authority is the first point, right, is that who runs this empire? What is it for? Yes, but there does have to be an authority, I think, if you're talking about empire. You can't just have a collection or a, a, an alliance, I suppose. Uh, to me, the word empire suggests a singular authority of some kind, even if the singular authority is a governing body rather than a governing individual. So Freya mentioned something in our little pre-recording chat, which was interesting about how empire seems to be primarily for funneling resources. I think that that's a, a fair statement, or at least a, a way that it can manifest. I don't think that's the only way, though. I think that it can also be a way to kind of smooth over the edges between various cultures when one culture has more power than another, it can be easier just to conquer than to deal with getting poked at by the smaller one. Right. Yeah, and that's what they talk about, preserving stability. Right, is, exactly. You know, the ideal of an empire is something that is peaceful, but when it comes to <laughs> developing your empire and forming your empire and the realities of trying to preserve empire, it probably isn't most of the time. I don't think anyone sets out, except for Alexander the Great, nobody <laughs> sets out to conquer an empire. Nobody says, I think that this would be a great idea. It usually starts smaller, where you have one group of people who is fighting with another group of people, and then someone wins, and the other group is assimilated, and then the first group is now a little bit bigger. And then they start fighting with someone else and then they win and then they're a little bit bigger and it goes on and on until you reach this kind of, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, critical mass. Critical mass. That was exactly the word that I was <laughs> looking for. Thank you so much. Where you either like 
have to keep fighting people or people will start sort of picking away your edges. And I, I think that you have just described Empire as a giant game of Katamari Damacy. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> but okay, let's talk a little bit and I we should probably go into our tent poles at some point, but I think space and interplanetary stories particularly lend themselves to this framework of an interface between multiple cultures just because of the way the boundaries between planets work. Yeah, there's always a huge, huge gap between two planets because you have, you know, space. The final frontier. Sorry, I had to. But at the same time, we would think that that almost would be counter to the idea that you have to have people sort of worrying at your edges. So if you think of the history of England, France and Scotland. Uh, France and Scotland work together because England is literally in the middle and there are these very clear borders and you can kind of nudge yourself over the border or build a little castle on the border. But in space, if the borders are literally space, you have to work a little bit harder to worry at someone else's border. You have to literally leave your planet. Well, you do until you're already a multi-planetary system to start with. And that's where the critical mass comes from, I suppose. Yes. Because then you want to travel through people's space. And also it depends what, again, what resources you have in your system and that exist in other systems. So that would be a more deliberate form of empire. And also, as we have seen, for example, with the American Revolution, like hanging on to your empire can be extremely expensive. And at some point, it's not worth it. Like, mm. that's kind of how the Americans won the revolution is that they made it too expensive and time consuming and resource consuming for the British Empire to hold on to that colony. I would like to jump on though, so we can do a quick uh, summary of each of the tent poles we're going to be talking about today. Yes, please. Yes. yes. So the first one that I wanted to talk about was Ancillary Justice and the rest of the Imperial Ratch trilogy by Anne Leckie, which I know that uh, Freya has also read. Yes. I started reading. Yes. <laughs> Alex tries. I try really hell. hard. I'm in edit hell. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what you want from me. I'm doing my best. I'm doing You're my doing best. You're doing your best. There, there. It's okay. So it's a super cool story that has a lot of things to say about identity and autonomy, but specifically I wanted to talk about it in the context of space empires, because it does a lot of really interesting things with the concept of a ruler, and particularly an immortal ruler, and I think this is something you get in sci-fi that you don't really get in historical or fantasy quite as much. When you have empires and kings and queens, you have to have a dynasty there. I can I can think of a couple fantasy novels that would have an example of an immortal overlord, but for the most part, I think it is yeah. Fantasy tends towards the dynastic, right? And I think that you can have though those tend to not be the ones who are very good at forming a bureaucracy that's functional, hmm. right? The the ones who went full megalomaniac. <laughs> is any bureaucracy functional? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Very good. I was going to say the the whole idea of dynasty is that it's a form of immortality. Yes, and so that's the reason why fantasy will tip the other, or sci-fi will tip the other way. We're all trying to preserve our legacy and if we can't do it by stay staying on the throne ourselves then we put our gene pool on the throne for as right. long as possible except that anatomy and i uh took the approach of saying i'm just gonna clone myself eternally and i'm gonna stick my own consciousness in myself repeatedly and kind of deploy myself across the galaxy and then also deploy my conquering clone zombie ships to conquer the galaxy for me what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? But it's fascinating because this is a series that really does deal with 
the fact that you can't communicate instantaneously between your planets, right? So how, as an emperor, do you deal with the fact that you just can't be everywhere at once? Well, it sounds like a too much work to me, and I would prefer to have a nap, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> this, Alex, is why you are an author and not a galaxy-ruling space overlord or That's lady. Actually, that is, in fact, the reason and the only reason why I'm not a galactic space overlord. This is right. <laughs> Because we all know that if I had any kind of like personal discipline, I would be on that shit. <laughs> Alternatively, you would just clone yourself and you'd be like, okay, you can have this idea, you can have this idea, you can have this idea, and we'd end up with this clone of Alex's. This required a lot of upkeep because all of them would just sit around writing. This this is a problem. Oh no. We would run out of trees. <laughs> Let's not do that. That's We'd run out of what? Trees to print your books on. Oh, well. <laughs> but, but, but back to Anatomy and I. Um, the, the, the cool and yet inevitable thing is that she does the same thing that all empires eventually do, which is fracture yes. and fight herself. And it's super cool because there's this whole spy thing where she's trying to conceal herself's motives from herself and ah, I it's think awesome. if I had a favorite part of the life cycle of an empire, it would be the breaking of the empire. Yes, the it has grown too heavy for its own mass and... And, and now it falls apart under its own weight. Yes. Hmm. Would you agree? Would you say that that's your favorite part of the empire life cycle? I find... I'm not sure. I think that that one's super interesting. I think that the formation is also interesting. The experimentation in what system are you going to commit to? So uh, the, the cultural system yeah. in... The Imperial Raj trilogy is fairly lenient as to local customs and does a lot by basically kidnapping tons of people and also murdering them a bunch and breaking their kind of ability to rebel that way. Mm. And I know, yes, Freya might have more to say on that one because it's been a little while since I read all of these. Uh, no, I think that's, that's right. And I think you're right, that's my favourite part of an Empire story as well is that immediate aftermath or the, the in-process part of once you've got something, how do you hold on to it? Yes, the, the bit in Game of Thrones where Danny has conquered a bunch of cities and now they want her to do what? Rule them? What is this? This is some bullshit. Yeah, you have to shift gears from gobbling everything up to, okay, now we have to take care of these things. Like, right, the, and there's this great bit at the... Oh, hold on, hold on. I am thinking of the most amazing quote from The Little Prince. You become responsible forever for what you have tamed. <gasps> yes. I love that. I could put my Machiavelli quote here, but I might save it for later. Let's save it a little bit, I think, because I have this great quote from the end of the last Ancillary Mercy book, when all of the AIs have kind of... Sorry, Alex, we're spoiling you for everything. It's going to happen. I'm sorry. That's okay. The AIs have kind of won their right to independence and broke a small chunk of the Empire off and now have to rule it themselves. And one of them says to the main character, by all means, enjoy your hobby, but all these questions, who gets to be a citizen, who gets to be in charge, who makes what decisions, how everyone gets fed, don't matter to me, so long as it all works and I get the things I need. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thesis of Empire in a <laughs> nutshell. But speaking of how Empire's fracture, so the second temple that we have yes. is Star Wars. The entire, the entirety <laughs> of Star Wars. So I'm going to have to break this down a little. And I have, yes, created some dot points of which the subtitle is A Fairly Good Lesson in How to Become a Dictator. This is Freya's monologue of the week. Everybody settle in and brace yourselves. I have popcorn. Go. Take it away, girl. All right. So the good thing about Star Wars from this point of view is that it actually shows the life cycle mm. of an empire because we begin in the prequel trilogy 
with uh, the Galactic Republic, which is essentially a representative democracy, but it contains member sovereign planets. And the whole idea is that the prequel trilogy shows us the rise of a dictator that is made possible because the Galactic Republic has been around for 25,000 <laughs> years. It has this huge weight of bureaucracy and corruption on every level. Uh, and with the idea is that the Sith are secretly working to increase this corruption mm -hmm. and uh, increase and accelerate the fragmentation of the Republic. Uh, and so what actually happens is the eclipsing of the legislative and the judicial branches of the, the Republic by the executive branch. So you have the Galactic Senate, you have the High Court, and then you have the Chancellor. And essentially, we have the Supreme Chancellor rising to power. And then you have the Clone Wars, where the Chancellor's term gets constantly extended because there is a state of emergency, mm -hmm. which is called the Separatist Crisis, which is where you actually get that fragmentation. You get a lot of the member states withdrawing, sometimes to be independent, sometimes to form their own confederation. Lots of violence, you get this sort of breakdown into war, and again with the idea that Palpatine and the Sith are kind of making that happen. Mm -hmm. And then you get outright war, which is an excuse to finally destroy the Jedi Order, who are this sort of symbolic last bastion of morality essentially and then the chancellor has this increasing autocracy because there's emergency powers because there's a war on which le leads up to padme's line about this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause <laughs> showing the galactic republic becoming the galactic empire and then you hit the original trilogy which has got this galactic empire evil fascists blah 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 versus the plucky rebels who are actually called, the Rebel Alliance is called the Alliance to Restore the Republic, with the idea that they're trying to go back to what was before, even though what was initially before was this Republic that wasn't working, because it was dying under its own weight. And eventually when they win over the bad guys at the end of the original trilogy, you get the formation of the New Republic. And then with the new trilogy, it starts to complicate things again in a way that is very familiar to anybody in today's political climate, because essentially, a blindness to recent history, I suppose, allows the First Order to rise, to slowly consolidate power all across the galaxy by military recruitment from poor and desperate communities who think they have no other options, while the Senate of the New Republic says, oh, look, they're not really a threat, let's just ignore them, <laughs> and Leia gets really angry and founds the Resistance and gets labelled a warmonger. <laughs> Except this time the First Order create the space in which they can rise by blowing a lot of shit up. So they destroy the capital planet of the New Republic. They stage a very widespread violent coup. Mm -hmm. And that's how they rise to power. My question for you, because with the new trilogy, we, we're not quite done yet. So based on your knowledge of the life cycle of empires, what would you predict will be the end of the new trilogy? So I think because of what's the, what the First Order have created is an even more unstable form of empire because they are very much about subjugation so their their idea is that everyone bends the knee to the first order it's all about it's going to be about resources mm -hmm. it's going to be about the resources of planets being used to funnel towards the first order and keeping a military kind of peace i suppose but it's not going to be peace so that because they have no way of holding on to the planets they've conquered apart from violence and this is all the whole thing of Star Wars, is it's just about the bad guys have these enormous weapons, the good guys manage to destroy the enormous weapons, the bad guys go away and make some even bigger weapons. Because they have space wizards. Because they're space wizards. And so I think it's going to show that the First Order is creating a very autocratic kind of empire that cannot survive because they can't have their fingers everywhere. The only way they can keep people down is by violence.
So to answer your question, I think what's going to happen is that they'll eventually have another republic, the new new republic of some kind, because by the internal ethos of the Star Wars universe, that is the only, like, a representative democracy is the only thing that, you know, is considered to be a good form of governance and empire for this many sovereign states. But with the idea that the Jedi, which were the sort of balancing force originally, and then got wiped out, with the restoration of the Jedi Order, that is what's going to keep the peace. That's the whole point with the balance of the Force. Yes, yes. So it would come full circle. Yes. You have the restoration of the Jedi, you have the restoration of re representative Republic. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's my question. Do we feel that the Republic is in its own way an empire? Yes. It's just a nice empire. Yeah, it's a, it's a representative one, but it, it shows that because there is a single governing body, it can become more autocratic very quickly. Right, and I think that it's it comes back to this idea of navigating trade between so many disparate nations. You need some sort of framework, right? Yeah. Otherwise, how are you going to communicate between species with such different cultural norms if you don't have something to refer back to? Mm. And, then, and then it sort of grows from there that once you've got that, you have to have some laws that apply mm -hmm. across everybody. And that's what having a high court of a galactic republic is. And once you've got that, who sets those laws? Well, that's the mm -hmm. galactic senate. And yeah, so it comes from saying, as soon as you've everyone's agreed to play nice together, there has to be a body to decide what are the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And then our, our third tentpole is The Course of Honor by, and I'm not sure how to pronounce their name, either Avoliat or Avolio, which is a novel length original fic posted on Archive of Our Own. And it's incredibly good. I had such a good time reading it. Macy and Freya sort of assigned this one to me because it has all of the things that I like. <laughs> Space empires and a really sweet romance and huddling for warmth. <laughs> <laughs> arranged arranged marriage. marriage. And arranged marriage and fealty, all kinds of good stuff. Yes, this was specifically <laughs> designed for me. and But I can't talk about all of those things because I'm supposed to talk uh -huh. about space empires today for some reason. So the cool thing about Course of Honor, this is now Alex's mm -hmm. fun times history corner. Course of Honor is doing a thing that was common practice in both medieval Europe and also in Sengoku era Japan, which is the, approximately the 1500s. The thing that would, would happen in medieval Europe, I think particularly in England and France, is that you had all these feudal lords and they were sort of bickering with each other and forming alliances. And to strengthen your alliance, you would take one of your children and send them off to be raised mm -hmm. in someone else's house in the the home of one of the other feudal lords and they would spend like five ten years there until they were your child biologically but just as much someone else's child by adoption and they would also send one of their children to you and so you strengthen your alliance with actual family ties with genuine human affection and the way that this was done in Sengoku era Japan was a little bit different because it was much more of a deliberate hostage situation. The system was started by Tokugawa Hideyoshi, and he required that all of his feudal lords keep their wives and families in Osaka Castle or nearby Osaka Castle as a way of enforcing their loyalty. So that if one of them rebelled or tried to start shit, Tokugawa Hideyoshi would just go yeah. kill 
his family. And <laughs> uh, so it was it was a little bit more Machiavellian than uh, the other system, but completely effective. So what Course of Honor is doing is that it has something similar to this. And it's it according to my assessment, it's kind of halfway mm-hmm. between these two systems. So you have this space empire, which is definitely trying for some kind of representation within its government, but it doesn't want, well, hold on, hear, hear me out. It doesn't want to give it the representatives any kind of actual power. It wants to do the thing where you have, where you have given control of the government in the local area to the locals mm. and having them pay taxes to you and having them be loyal to you. And so they have sent to, to help encourage this, they have sent one of their representatives who is then in a political marriage with someone from the central conquering empire. And it's not so much that these are hostage, but it's also that the way in which that individual behaves is then taken as very Mm. symbolic. Right. So that character spends a lot of time worrying about the fact that if he behaves in a bad way or brings shame on his family, then you know, all of the onus of representing his state, which is a subjugated state, is on him. He's almost, yeah, obligated yes. to behave in a certain way. So it's, so in that sense, it's a little bit hostage, but it's also a little bit fostering because you're bringing this person into your family. But it's super fascinating because I think it's fair to say that this is a romance novel. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a romance novel. It's a romance novel, but there's a bunch of actually kind of quite worrying things happening in the background with the political situation and so forth yeah except that it's a very in, in tone it's very very much is focused on the interpersonal problems of the main characters and their immediate situations but there's clearly also a lot happening a lot of tension underneath that they aren't always highlighting yeah and i would i would suggest that the romance of the two main characters is kind of a symbolic or a microcosm of the relationship going on between the empire and this one particular conquered people i wouldn't say so because i don't feel that the empire respects the conquered nation okay and i do feel that is definitely not the case in the relationship the relationship is one between equals and the political relationship is not well i mean i think i mean in terms of more seeking stability and having a mutually profitable relationship or, or mutually beneficial perhaps maybe i think it does come back to why one of the reasons that we we love doing empires in space which is you get to play with a ton of these cool space mining and asteroids and science and laser cars that fly while also having international political arranged marriages yeah absolutely i think the reason why we love empire emperors and monarchs kings and queens and princes and princesses and keep on putting them in uh you know the future even though in our world we still i guess in a lot of places think of the monarchy as something that's a bit outdated and so we think oh well here we are in space surely we're all over that now no we still want to write about (laughs) kings and queens and emperors because you do get those really good tropes such as arranged political marriage which is obviously a stalwart of the romance genre Uh, But it also means that if you keep writing about those kind of people, then 
you get a very easy way to have high stakes in a story. And I think it does come back to what we talked about a little bit earlier in Star Wars about the way that we want to have a nice trade relationship between two planets can accidentally spiral into having an empire. Oops, I tripped an accidentally <laughs> empire. <laughs> well, like over the course yeah. of millennia, right? But that there's a degree of stability in having a single powerful person in charge of everything, right? Consolidating power in one body seems to be something that most systems fall back to. And it is, it's the, it's the, I was trying to explain some math to Alex the other day. It was terrible. It was, we were, we were hanging out together in person in New York and Macy sat me down and looked deeply into my eyes and said, now I'm going to explain some math to you. Take a deep breath. Do you need to sit down? And I said, <laughs> just do it. Just get it over with. <laughs> it was fine. It wasn't painful. It I wasn't, was, I was it wasn't, I will admit, horrible math. <laughs> okay. It's, 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 it's basic Stability. It's more physics, really. It's physics, right. So, Freya, if I was to say um, a stable or an unstable equilibrium, what's your image in your head? Oh, God. <laughs> High school chemistry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially a stable equilibrium is one, yeah, well, essentially you've got things forming and reforming and moving between two different states um, in a way that if it's left undisturbed will continue to function, whereas an unstable one, if it's left undisturbed, eventually one of the two states will gain critical mass. Even more simple than that, it's like if you have a marble and you put it in the bottom of a U-shape and then nudge it a tiny bit, it's going to roll back down into the bottom of the valley. Whereas if you balance a marble on the point at the top of a hill, if you nudge it a tiny, tiny bit, it's going to fall all the way off. Yes, fair enough. This is the sort of extremely simple small words <laughs> that Macy has to use to explain math to me. No, but it, my, my point is that there are some systems that seem to fall into a particular state. And it seems that we as writers like to talk about systems that have fallen into a state where an individual sentient being has become in charge. Yes, and I think... Part of it also is just the fact that having a figurehead is good for morale. Mm. It's hard to have strong feelings about... The council? The council, <laughs> right, or about the UN. But you certainly have feelings about, like, the one person in charge. But also from a craft point of view, it does make it an unstable equilibrium mm. because it's a lot easier to have your inciting incident be, oh, look, an assassination. Now there's chaos. Right. Yeah. Then, okay, someone, now we have to think of a way to undermine this fairly stable governing council from five different points at once. It's a lot easier right. if you have all the power in one person to then play with that. And like in Course of Honor, it is suggested that one bad political marriage could upset the entire system. Right. And I think that once you have one person in charge, it's a lot easier to imagine it turning into a dynasty. Yeah. Mm. But my question remains, how do you have a single person or being ruling across galaxies if you have not decided lol fuck physics? If I were going to do it, mm -hmm. I would do it... Actually, before I explain how I do it, Freya, would you like to read that Machiavelli quote that you have? Because Machiavelli is kind of answering, like, how do you do this thing? Yeah, Machiavelli, so The Prince by Machiavelli is essentially all about this question. I, I wanted to say, actually, I'm going to correct myself because this is still a question even on, like, Rome, 
right? Because you can't speak between Gaul and Egypt instantaneously when you are in ancient Rome. So it's exactly what Machiavelli would be thinking about. Exactly. And I think, well, that's one of the reasons why Space Empire works is because as writers, we, we're sort of mining the history of human civilization for our plots. Mm. And it's a lot easier to map the, the, the Roman Empire or Alexander the Great's empire onto space travel. Can we mention Kate Elliott is writing gender-swapped Alexander the Great in space and it's going to exist soon and I'm so excited. You're all <gasps> so really excited good. about it. I say, so Machiavelli is concerned with this question of how do you govern a conquered empire when it is very spread out, if, even if the spread is because the only way you can literally get from your capital to the furthest reach of your empire is very slowly on a horse <laughs> versus relatively slowly on a starship because we're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of light years. <laughs> relatively slowly. <laughs> because of because of relativity. <laughs> Great joke. Go Thanks. To me. <laughs> right. Quote, quote from The Prince by Nico Machiavelli. And this is a quote with the problems when you are trying to impose empire on democratic or previously democratic states. And he does have entire chapters on how you conquer and then hold an existing monarchic society. But this one is more to do with when you are an empire over some states that have not previously been part of an empire. So here's the mm -hmm. point. When the states you invade have been accustomed to governing themselves without a monarch and living in freedom under their own laws, then there are three ways of holding on to them. The first is to reduce them to rubble. The second is to go and live there yourself. The third is to let them go on living under their own laws, make them pay you a tax, and install the government of just a few local people to keep the state as a whole friendly. Once you've decided not to destroy it, the best way to hold a previously self-governing city is with the help of its citizens. And I love that quote because the one, two, three actually maps quite nicely onto our temples for the episode, I think. Yes, very much. So reduce them to I... rubble is pretty much what the First Order and the Death Star, etc. is all yes. about. And, and Imperial Ratch does, Ratch does a ton of occupying and... Go live there yourself. Yep. Yes, go live there yourself. Or at least as a clone. As a clone. Go send your corpse zombies. Did, did, I need to mention this for those readers, those listeners who haven't read the thing. The deeply disturbing thing is they deploy as shock troops these AI-possessed zombie corpse fighty things that might just be your friend that was here a minute ago and whoops now they're the zombie that's fine that's fine yeah right? creepy Woo. and then of course uh course of honor is doing the third one which is getting the locals to govern themselves but also pay you space tax yes yeah. uh and i think like really the third is the most practical the third makes the best use of resources and it has the best chance of the people you have conquered being happy because they get to keep their way of life, they get to keep all of the things that are familiar and comfortable, and really, only they only have to make a couple small con concessions, just just a couple extra taxes, and you know, having some guy's face on their coins who they've never heard of. And one of the points, one of the points Machiavelli makes is that the government that you install cannot be the same as the previous government. It should be people who are dependent on you for their position of mm. power, because then they will be invested in maintaining their power. If you just let the previous government keep on governing, there's no loyalty to you as the ultimate ruler. Right. 
I think I'm going to disagree with Alex a little bit, though, about number three being the best. I think that you have to ask what you're trying to achieve. And I'm going to look at space opera a little bit. So hang on, hang on, wait, 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 though. Of those three options, which do you think is the best? I don't think you can say that there is a best. Okay, when I say, hold on, so just to disagree with your disagreeing. (laughs) (laughs) When I say the best way, I mean, for if your goal is keep your empire intact and set out on this this imperial project as it were if if the target is have an empire then the best way to go about having an empire is with local governments if if you're talking about having multicultural then then maybe other options are reduce them to rubble or go live there yourself going to live there yourself is an awful hassle no one wants to do that there's not enough time for naps and you might get more assassinated (laughs) Uh, reducing them to rubble also a waste of time. But what if I'm? What if I have too many children? Then you send them as viceroys, but all of their advisors are locals. I mean, I yeah. think that um, the point that I was trying to make was it very much depends on whether you consider the folks. And we are getting into, let's be very clear, real world imperialist yeah. shit that is real bad. But do you consider the people of your conquered nation to be people? Yes, that's a big question. That's a huge question. And I think option three only happens if you think that they're people. Right. Right? And in space empires, we get to put a little bit of a distance between ourselves and the true horror of these questions sometimes when we choose to make the other planet's people aliens instead of humans. Because then we can more easily think like, oh, they're not really people. Mm. And I think that this was one of the things that Space Opera did that was super great, Mm. uh, which was one of the central questions in the galactic civil war that predates the start of the book was, who is sentient? Who is people and who is meat? But Imperial Vatch does not shy away from this question. Everybody in the Vatch is human and everybody could be a citizen, but not everybody is a citizen. And... It gets real into that. And I think if you're thinking of the imperialist model that's based on resources again, then you run into things like Jupiter Ascending, where you've got a family controlling a large empire, Mm -hmm. and they very clearly do not think of the citizens of these planets as being people in the same way that they are people, uh, because they completely refuse to acknowledge their humanity because they're using them for parts, essentially. They're using them as an energy resource. Right. And then you have the system of the Kel and the other factions in Nine Fox Gambit and the Machineries of Empire, where all of the agents of Empire, the people who are in the factions, who are in government, are citizens in the exact same way as every other human within the system, but they just treat people brutally. It's not that they say they're not people, it's that they treat people Mm. brutally. And it's doing a different thing again. They put down rebellions in vicious, cruel ways, and they use terrorism on their own subjects. But they are, they still acknowledge that they are citizens. It's just that being a citizen doesn't really gain you anything. Right. And so that in that part, it's, you're thinking, if you're thinking about, you know, colonialist narratives in our own world, mm. it always tipped back the other way. You've always got this sense that people there were not quite human. You know, that's where the, the whole horrific idea of terra nullius comes from thinking about uh, Australian colonization with this idea that you can come to this you know brave new world and it's not it's uninhabited it's just free space and oh there are some 
you know, we'll call them people in quotation marks here, uh, getting in the way, but they're not seen as properly people, and so they can't have any claim on the land. Alex, did you want to talk about terraforming? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so uh, on the subject of not having any claim on the land, like, has anyone actually thought about how horrific terraforming is? Like, even if you approach a planet which has no sentient life on it, and maybe no life at all, for example, Mars, and you still take it for yourself and completely change it and rip it apart to suit your own needs mm -hmm. and in every sci-fi in every sci-fi book that i've ever read terraforming is approached as a very neutral subject like oh yes we have to go like change completely overhaul this planet to make it suitable for humans to live and no one really thinks about like how actually weird and fucked up fucked up that is well if you're talking about places where life might have one day eventually formed or evolved and i guess you're kind of colonizing someone's potential or colonizing their future by hmm. saying, well, you know, left alone, this planet might have gone in this direction, but we've come in, we've terraformed it, and now it's going to go in another di direction entirely. Is that actually, is that a violent act or is that just saying, well, now evolution on this planet is going to go a slightly different way? I, I would argue that it is a violent act because there is an impulse, there is a violent impulse behind it, even if there's no actual victim of the impulse. But if, if there's, you're not actually causing harm to any currently living being. But the sort of like culture of thinking that it's okay to do that. But he here's the thing, though. That's just how humans are with our own. Yeah, and it's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's how I want to say that's how living beings are. I mean, look at the changes that a beaver uh, will cause to its environment by forming a dam. It will change acres of land all around it, it will affect the lives of countless other creatures. And that's just how it be. That's just how how life is. Life is an agent of change. I'm looking forward to your upcoming series, Humans, Space Beavers. <laughs> <laughs> I just, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't write space books. Don't make me write space books. But if we are thinking, so we are in the middle of discussing this idea of um, whether you exploring space and you know, putting your fingers out into space that isn't quotation marks yours, whether it is inherently imperialistic or colonialist. And I think there are some sci-fi narratives that try to show a model that isn't. So I, the idea, the one I was thinking of is Star Trek. This whole mm -hmm. idea is behind Star Trek is they're trying to show uh, how people might uh, explore space in a way that is not designed to, to be imperialistic and it's not designed to be colonialist with this whole the first directive, what was it called? The prime directive mm. of not interfering if it's going to make a significant dis difference in the evolution. So not to go in and culturally terrify right. anybody. But obviously, Star Trek being Star Trek, it also shows you what happens when that very benign impulse goes wrong. And I think it's also a really good example of an empire that isn't evil. Like whether or not empires are always a force for bad. Mm. And you were saying that uh, earlier you wanted to ask the question of whether the UN was an empire, so right. whether there was some, whether an empire in space or otherwise can be set up that is mostly beneficial. Right, I mean, and I think that if we're going back to the format of an empire as just a system that works to preserve the serenity of that system, I think the real question around whether or not something is evil, and please feel free to argue with me on this, by the way, 
I think the question is, what is the system that it's trying to reinforce, right? Uh, give us an example. So, like, the system of the Raj is that resources should go back to Ananda Mianai, say. Or the system of Star Wars is that they should get to blow up whoever they want and also get all the kyber crystal that they want. Right, okay, so we're thinking about systems where it's about the enrichment of the authority versus... Or say the system of Rome hmm. is that, you know, all roads lead to Rome, Rome gets to decide everything, uh, the, the vassal states pay tithes and don't really get a say, but if they're very, very good, they can become citizens eventually. So in that case, the driving urge isn't actually stability, as you suggested in Arcadia's quote at the beginning, but it's actually enrichment and empowerment. Well, I think, okay, let me let me clarify something from Arcadia's quote then. Um, it is not stability. It is stability of that system. Okay. It is, okay. I think, the an, an earlier version of that quote was the, preserve the serenity of that system. It is very much about preserving the comfort and way of life of the ruling class or what the ruling class decides should be stability. Right. I think a lot of empire stories show what happens when the attempt to do that goes wrong. Like you can't strip mine everyone for resources without having given some thought to renewability. Right. And so there, I, I think I would say that there are like Star Trek, like the... Hey, Alex, you can talk a little bit about the, the space opera uh, Eurovision. Yes. So the cool thing that it happens in space opera, uh, Macy mentioned the sentience wars, the intergalactic civil war that happened before the beginning of the book. And the way that they have dealt with the aftermath of that is a direct map of how Europe dealt with the aftermath of World <laughs> War II, which is, oh shit, we just had a huge fight and now we have to get along and reform all of our interactions with each other as humans rather than as different sides of a war. And the way that we're going to do that is by sending, rep once a year, we'll send representatives to sing about love and peace and wear fancy dresses and... Sometimes they sing about pancakes. Sometimes there are grandmas and they sing about pancakes. Uh, sometimes there is Verka Seduchka, who is incredible. I'm going to mention as many Eurovision artists as possible so that we can link them all in the show notes. Listen, all I know is that Germany... Germany wears sequined pants. Most people wear sequined pants in yeah. in Eurovision, Macy. <laughs> uh, if you don't wear sequined pants, you lose points. Uh, so what space opera is Eurovision in space. So these all of these different aliens have agreed to determine sentience based on whether a newly discovered planet can send someone to participate in space Eurovision and come in anywhere except dead last. So as long as they get some points from someone, then they're considered sentient and you're not allowed to kill them. I have a question because I haven't read this book. So is this annual you know, extravaganza used as a cover for sort of diplomatic relations as well? Like it, because it's an excuse for everybody to gather in one place. Is it also used for pe for representatives to sort of do little like, you know, under the table deals or like quietly talk to one another over drinks in a way that might actually be, you know, politically quite important? Poss possibly. I mean, it's not okay. really a direct. It's not that kind of book. Aww. Because I was thinking partly about the musical chess, but but I was also actually thinking about my Yuri on Ice fanfic with the idea of a central 
uh, sort of celebration that is not serious, in this case a sporting event that is semi-sport, semi-entertainment, which is again used as a, oh, we'll send a representative and it's all very fun and it doesn't really matter who wins, but at the same time it's used as an excuse to get all the young people from all of these uh, planets into a room together for a week so that people can make deals. And I think that that's a great example, again, of um, an empire trying to preserve a system that is about negotiation and people compromising and getting what they want in a trade way and, you know, generally just talking to one another. Kind of yeah. how the UN does a little bit, even though it's not really an empire as such, but that kind of impulse, right? I think my, my thesis is that if you're building a space empire around that impulse, it might not necessarily, it might not necessarily be evil. Yeah. And, and for I, anybody who is extremely confused about why I mentioned Yuri on Ice and then immediately talked about space <laughs> princes, <laughs> it's an AU. I'm sorry. It's really, it's, it's basically like um, null gravity ballet type athletic competition and it's gorgeous and it has pictures and you should go read it. And it's exactly what I was talking about with the urge to set things in space and to use royalty right. so that you have an excuse to do romance tropes like arranged marriage. And I am going to suggest that since we're running close on time we briefly talk about why we decided to do this episode. What do we love individually? What's the thing that draws us to space? Well for me I think it is that idea of having a huge, you know, diversity of very different cultures. So you can do diverse human cultures, you can do alien cultures, and then you can just plop it all down in the one story and start to dig into things like how does diplomacy work, how does cooperation and exploration work, and what kind of clashes can you get. So you can have military, you can have court intrigue, you can have so many different genres because the breadth of space as a setting allows for that diversity. That's what I like about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always interesting to take something familiar and say, okay, but what if we scaled it up times infinity? That is a very you thought, yes. Yeah, it is a very <laughs> me thought. But like, how, like, does it work the same if it's bigger? Does it work the same if it covers a unfathomably huge amount of space? And how does it change? And when does critical mass happen in that uh, situation? And I think for me, uh, my favorite thing ever is is world building and coming up with new magic schemes. And to me, a different alien species is, in a way, a magic scheme, mm. right? Like the way that their physics works is its own thing. The way that their species just happens is different, right? Yeah, and you can you can write about very very dramatically different yes. ways of their perceptions of the world because they might have completely different senses than we do. And specifically for me, and I am such, such a primarily fantasy author, but I don't feel like I would be able to write different forms of magic that like fundamentally work differently interacting with each other nearly as easily or as fluently in a fantasy setting as I could write different aliens interacting with each other in a space setting. So that's something that I find really intriguing about, you know, the vast open reaches of space and never knowing what might be out there. I think that's because we think of magical, the, the rules of a magical system are kind of universal rules. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of having multiple magical systems in one universe, you kind of run into issues like, you know, 
physics works differently in different places, whereas, yeah, you can have the same laws of physics across an entire universe, but you can then fill that universe with incredibly, incredibly disparate people. Right, and this is why, like, I, I really do enjoy The Expanse, and, but it's not, to me, it doesn't quite fit into, like, deep space. It doesn't have the pizzazz of Farscape. <laughs> Farscape. Farscape has so much pizzazz. I love Farscape. Leather pants and pizzazz. <laughs> but, like, there is a particular genre of hard sci-fi that has stuff like the Mars trilogy that's super terraformy, or the Expanse that is super, like, close to Earth, that doesn't catch me in quite the same way because it is so much... It's just extrapolating from the present a little bit. And I want completely batshit off-the-wall Eurovision deep space. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I watched Revenge of the Sith for the first time in preparation for this episode, you know. I am somewhat convinced this was a prank, as I know for a fact that my fellow serpents, far more sensibly, did not. But I do love thinking about ways we can subvert or circumvent some of the grosser imperialist tropes inherent in galactically scoped space opera. Who knows? Perhaps Cat Valenti has the right of it, and the future will be built out of sparkly pants and trans-species space Eurovision after all. Regardless of the silliness, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on June 6th, we'll be airing our episode 10 extravaganza and answering some of your questions, darling listeners. It's going to be the best kind of party. If you have a friend who's into that kind of shindig, invite them along. And who knows, maybe we'll make a habit of it. In the meantime feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, I'd save you if the Vogon bulldozed Earth to make way for a galactic superhighway. I think you're worth it. <laughs>